You're listening to a special counterterrorism episode of Policy, Guns and Money. In this episode, we consider counterterrorism through the lens of the UK and Australian experiences. First up, you'll hear from Aspie's roving reporter Brendan Nicholson, who spoke with Sir Paul Stevenson, former commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police. Sir Paul, welcome to Australia. Now, it's very useful for us to have somebody with as much knowledge and personal experience um, of dealing with terrorism to talk to about it. How do you feel that Western communities in particular, United Kingdom, countries like Australia, are actually dealing with terrorism and what could we do to improve it? Well, gosh, um, it's hardly my place to come up over here and lecture you guys how to uh, deal with the problem in Australia. But I, I can bring a, a level of experience mm-hmm. to the subject matter. But I always say that um, throughout my life, my job is to ensure that I, I do both assisting and learning in equal parts. And that's what I've been doing for the last few days over here in Australia. Um, quite clearly, uh, you have a different picture over here with the number of uh, terrorist attacks that you've experienced against what I've experienced both through my career and in recent times in the United Kingdom. Uh, but the principles are still the same. Uh, it is all about how prepared are you, uh, how much work do you do to ensure that you stay lucky, that when you are confronted by these horrific events, that you manage to get through them with the minimum of casualty, with the minimum of disruption, and get back to recovery and get back to civil society as soon as possible. Uh, what I've seen here in Australia is impressive, but it would be foolish to say that you couldn't be better yet. I, d- I don't know there is a perfect solution anywhere in the, in, in the Western world, and I guess that applies here in Australia. Australia is in an interesting position because, um, like Britain lost citizens in uh, the September 11 attacks, our worst toll and terrorist attacks were, were in Bali in, in Indonesia yes. with the nightclub attacks, and, and that was horrific and it really rocked the nation. Are those sorts of attacks much more difficult to deal with than a, than a domestic attack on the streets of a city like London or Sydney? I, I don't know. I wouldn't be arrogant enough to pass an opinion as to whether it's more difficult to deal with it in Bali as, as opposed to London. I guess each bring their unique difficulties. And of course, the attack that, uh, that dreadful attack in Bali, whatever preparedness you're going through within Australia, you're relying on another state to match that preparedness to look after your citizens. So I think it's different in nature, but but unfortunately, dreadfully the same in outcome. Um, I know that we, in responding to the 7-7 attacks in London, and I was the Deputy Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service at the time, uh, whilst it was a dreadful event, and we saw 52 of our friends, citizens, family being murdered. Uh, And we were rightly, in the aftermath, criticised in some ways where we could have done better. There was a wide amount of recognition and, if you will, international praise for the way in which we responded in that initial phase. And, you know, I really do believe that we had bought ourselves the right to be lucky in the way we dealt with that because we practised that scenario in the weeks before on the underground. So whilst nothing can ever be, fer- be perfect in responding to a crisis and an attack like that, by uh, by practicing, by thinking it through, by having that prepared mind, 
I do think you give, your, give yourself a greater chance to be lucky and minimise the dreadful outcomes of such an attack. One of the positive things that came out of the Bali attacks, the, the consequences for, for Australians and, and for Indonesians and a whole range of other people were, were horrific, but it led to a very intense era of cooperation between the two countries. Australia has access to the Five Eyes Intelligence Network and a lot of information. We have access to equipment uh, that the Indonesians at that early stage did not have access to. And we were able to develop a very close relationship agency to agency, which has prevailed despite other tensions at government level from time to time. How important is that international uh, hookup, international liaison in terms of dealing with terrorism? Well, I think there are two important things there in, 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 within your question. One, of course, it's massively important that we have the liaison between uh, cooperative and collaborating nations. Uh, we all learn different lessons from our, our own, own circumstances. So it's hugely important that we share that learning. And the second point is, actually, we should always learn. We should always be prepared to look at ourselves critically um, and sometimes painfully when we, even where we think we've done rather well, we, should, we know there are significant lessons to be learned. So we should always learn the lessons and we should share those lessons internationally. I think there is a, a sort of, there has been for many years, a very strong community of, of, of counter-terrorism agencies, both security services and cops who have worked very, very hard to see the globe as a small place and to ensure that whatever is going on anywhere in the world, there is an immediate sharing of the learning coming out of it or just a simple situation. I've seen that in action and I'm quite sure that has benefited all of us as we go forward in confronting this dreadful threat that we face. Do we learn from our mistakes? And from time to time, somebody, despite the best efforts of security personnel, is going to be killed in a terrorist attack. Quite often the public may well be screaming for scalp. Sometimes politicians don't help because they politicise issues and, and they may go passing blame on to people who've actually done their very best. Do we need to blame people when something goes wrong or should we learn from it? You know, that's a very interesting question. Uh, of course we should learn from mistakes. We should learn from any incident. Uh, we, we, we are... We are we, we, we should be intelligent creatures. We should be intelligent organisations. And no matter what, whether we've been successful or otherwise in preventing an attack, there is learning in every one of those incidents. There is learning in every one of those circumstances. And the public have a right to expect us to learn those lessons. And they have a right to expect us to be transparent in that learning and to ensure we are rigorous in asking ourselves and subjecting ourselves to difficult questions. But you know, there is an interesting thing about the public, and certainly it is my view with the United Kingdom public, and that is they have quite a mature view of the balance between security and risk, security and civil liberties. Uh, unfortunately, the United Kingdom has gone for many decades with a terrorist threat of one nature or the other, ranging back to the, the problems we got from the sort of the province in Northern Ireland and the Irish Republican terrorism and the loyalist terrorism, right the way through to the latter-day threats, um, represented from Al-Qaeda through ISIS, and indeed now some of the, um, if you want, right-wing extremism that is, um, that is worrying within the United Kingdom and Europe. Um, so we've got an experience of atrocities. We've got an unfortunate experience of our streets being disturbed, of our safe places being disturbed. And I think as a result of that, 
we have a public that recognise there can be no such thing as absolute security and that there is a price to pay for freedoms. And whilst we must do all we can to protect our citizens, if we go too far and aim for the perfect solution and aim for absolute security, a absolute security cannot exist. And sometimes we might wish to go too far from the security service and the cops of creating a situation where it looks more like a police state than it does a liberal democracy. That balance, I think, is pretty well understood by the public. Where we need to be careful is where, for political convenience, we look for a head-on stick because somebody might have made a mistake. The reality is I want to see leaders who learn from their mistakes. I don't want to see leaders who, who never, never made a mistake because they've never done anything. That is not a good place for our leadership in terms of emergency services or indeed security services to be. Now, I'm not advocating everybody go out there and make mistakes. Quite the, quite the opposite. We want to avoid them. But I want people who have the creativity and the bravery to do the very best they can in difficult circumstances. And where it goes wrong, and they've shown to act with professionalism uh, and integrity, but it hasn't gone as well as it should do, and there have been mistakes, that we don't automatically jettison them. They're some of the people who might be our best leaders in the future. Let us be very careful that we don't go just have a head on sticks culture. And how do you, how does a society take that, take resilience to that level where we are? We do understand the imperative that you've just described. Uh, million dollar question of how you do. There are examples of where it has been done. There are examples of where we have great leaders who have been through difficult times in the past, survived those difficult times, and they're all the better for it. We're good at it sometimes, we're not good at it on, on other occasions. We need political courage, as well as courage from our emergency services, to ensure that politicians back good people and support good people where they're seen to be acting professionally, with integrity, but in extraordinary difficult circumstances where occasionally um, we, not might, we might not be as successful as we'd want to be. Can people like you and your colleagues stop every terrorist attack? Absolutely not. It would be it would be utter nonsense to claim that could be the case. There is no such thing as absolute security. We've got to maximise our capability, but recognise the enemy, the various enemies that we face, uh, have a capability sometimes to breach, even with the best will in the world, the precautions we put in place. We've got to recognise that, uh, but we've got to do ever better in in ensuring we do the best we can in preventing. Look, I've been covering these areas long enough to remember the very intense debates we had in the, when the first surveillance cameras were put in various Australian cities. And there was a lot of concern from civil libertarians and, and the general population about half a dozen cameras. Now, hmm. there are hundreds of cameras all over all of our major cities and, and internationally, the same, same applies. We've accepted as a public, the introduction of very, very tough counter-terrorism and security measures. Is it possible, do you think, that this at some stage will be rolled back? Is it is it important to build into legislation like this sunset clauses and whatever so, that we, so we don't lose some of the things we most value? Uh, well, the camera debate is a very interesting one. I've, I'm pretty long in the tooth now, uh, and I remember the, um, the very lively debate from the 70s and the 80s through the 80s in the United Kingdom about the advent of security cameras. And of course, what we now see in London, I think I'm right in saying, is we are the most surveilled city in the world in terms of cameras. It's an old debate. 
almost everyone now sees the benefit of the cameras, mm. the benefits they brought to society, the safety it's brought, and the governance of, of that, and the and the the way in which they are not improperly used. So the camera debate has seen resistance through to acceptance, through to bringing real benefits. Had that had those cameras been dreadfully abused by the authorities, we'd, we would not mm. have arrived at this mature situation. And I think that's the same with all uh, new opportunities, be they opportunities coming, coming from uh, to surveillance techniques or not. So therefore, we have to ensure that whatever we're putting in place has the appropriate uh, legitimacy, transparency, and governance. If we do that, and then make sure we work very hard on the narrative as to where, the, where this will bring benefits and how we are maintaining the balance between civil liberties and security, then I think we win the day. But I, the, one other thing I would say is the balance between civil liberties, civil liberties and security is a moving feast and should always be so. So the idea that there is one, one single platform, one single position to arrive at, and you've got that balance correct would be, frankly, a naive view in my opinion. That balance does and should move with circumstances uh, as, as, as we are confronted by them. But it is, the, it is the job of politicians, it's the job of security service personnel, emergency service personnel, to constantly look at what opportunities there are, evaluate those opportunities, ensure where we do get those opportunities, we use them with integrity and with good governance and be prepared to explain our use of them and be transparent. Right, you touched on right-wing terrorism. Now, we've been focused very strongly in the last few years on Islamic extremism. How serious is other, or how serious are other forms of terrorism, particularly from the right? I think we should be concerned. Uh, we, 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 we are seeing organisations uh, that are now prescribed, uh, right-wing extremist organisations. We are seeing a rate of arrest in the United Kingdom uh, of right-wing extremists, that, which we might have been surprised at a number of years ago. Uh, we should be concerned. They are dangerous people. They bring a poisonous ideology in the same way that the other side of this debate do. And we should bring the full panoply uh, ability of law enforcement to ensure that we limit their ability to poison our society and damage our citizens. Now, societies across the world have put massive resources into um, security to protect their citizens. There's been a lot of very strong legislation. Is there a role for private security in protecting institutions in our countries and abroad? I understand the resistance from certain elements of the security service, in particular the cops, to the advent of private security and private policing. Because the argument simply goes that those that can afford to buy extra security do and be damned to the rest. The reality is I think we've got to wake up and smell the coffee. Private security is here. It's in all our shopping malls. It's in our uh, sort of industrial complexes. It's at our sporting events. It is a fact of life. So my view is, how do we create the opportunity to get the best out of that? How do we uh, expand the home team and increase the capability of the home team by ensuring that private security can complement the wider effort? Now that requires a sort of uh, some thinking around how we regulate, how we, what governance is in place, how we properly license people with the right checks, how we build confidence in that industry and how we build standards and improve the standards and improve the regulation. If we do that, 
and then bring them into that wider conversation, then we're effectively expanding the home team at a significantly less cost to the public purse. And good, goodness knows the public purse is more limited these days than perhaps it was in the past. So private security is a fact of life. So how do we make the best of it? Can it operate in places like Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, I just had a conversation with um, a very senior uh, American military figure who's outlined where the advantages have been of using private security in Iraq and Afghanistan and the disadvantages, some of the very real problems, but some of the very real benefits. That's life. Um, I didn't hear that particular individual arguing against it. What he was arguing for is, in, is to ensure that we understand the downsides, we understand what could happen if private security get it wrong, and demanding that we ensure that their standards, their, their oversight, their transparency is such that they can be relied upon and that we can explain their actions in a way that is satisfactory to wherever the citizens occupy that territory where they're operating. Private security co contractors have there have been two phenomena. On occasions, rogue members of private security groups have killed people outside the law, um, and they also get killed. Australia and Iraq lost. There were two Australians killed there. One was serving with the Royal Air Force at the time, and another killed himself accidentally, it appears. But several Australian former military people and police and whatever and other others were killed while working as contractors. The Fijians, who we work quite closely with, lost quite a few people mm -hmm. um, in Iraq uh, working as security contractors. Does it, does it need a particular type of oversight or a better oversight than it's had in the past? You know, I don't feel qualified to comment on that. Um, I spent my life uh, dealing with policing matters, emergency services matters within the United Kingdom. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan is, is, is out with my experience. Uh, are, it is tragic when we lose life, but these are very difficult territories to work, work, work within. Uh, but certainly the information I've just been receiving from someone who is experienced in these fields uh, so tells me that they bring a benefit. But of course, with that benefit comes real risk and real danger. Yep. And look, the last thing, just finishing off, the, um, you mentioned the importance of luck. Clearly, to a large extent, you make your own luck. You've got to have a proper system in place and properly trained people. So where does luck actually come into it? You can't have a, a system that is totally pervasive. You've got to let society continue. Where does luck come into it? Uh, we would agree. You can't have a, a system that introduced the police state. We are liberal democracies. That's what we are fighting to protect. The last thing we should do is do the enemy's job for them and take away those freedoms that we all so, so enjoy. I guess I would use the old story. I, I think I'm right in saying it was Gary Player, uh, that brilliant golfer, who was asked for a, from a fan, I understand, uh, Gary, how do you get so lucky on the golf course? And his response, I'm, I understand, was, I just don't know how it happens. It just seems the more I practice, the luckier I get. It, you, can put, you can bring that analogy to what we should be doing, around protecting our citizens and ensuring that we are match fit within the emergency services and our systems and structures. The more we prepare, the more we think the unthinkable, the more imagination we bring to bear, the more we give ourselves the chance to be lucky. For sure, we're always going to need luck, but luck doesn't come by happenstance. It doesn't come on its own. We, we need to give ourselves that opportunity. I think what I see here in Australia, there's much good work going on, but you'd have to be honest about it and say, 
quite clearly there's more work to be done. The same applies to the United Kingdom. Are we good enough at being imaginative and looking looking ahead at what might come that we weren't expecting? Uh, well, historically, I guess there's been a comment that suggests that maybe we're very good at preparing for the last attack, but we're not quite as imaginative uh, and don't have quite the same ability to think the unthinkable and prepare for something that we haven't, the next attack, that we haven't yet got our minds around. I think we're getting better at that, but we're not good enough. We cannot be good enough. Uh, if I said we were good enough, then that, that smacks of complacency and the citizens of Australia and the United Kingdom should rightly be very cross. So Paul, thanks very much. Thank you, and I've enjoyed my visit. Thank you very much. And now you'll hear from Maddie, who sat down with Dr. Isaac Kassir, Director of ASPE's National Security Programme and also Head of our Counterterrorism Policy Centre. Thank you so much for joining me, Isaac. Thank you. So I was listening to a really interesting interview that one of our colleagues here at ASPE, Brendan mm -hmm. Nicholson, he was interviewing Sir Paul Stevenson. He's mm -hmm. a former head of Metropolitan Police in London. Um, and Paul had a really interesting perspective uh, when it came to sort of responding to terrorist attacks. And he said that in countries like the UK and also Australia, but obviously for him in the UK, that's where his experience is. He sort of talks a lot about the need for countries to be prepared to sort of run through all possible scenarios and situations and that if countries are sufficiently prepared, then they thus have a greater chance at being what he called lucky um, in terms of responding to terrorist attacks um, so that we have minimal mm -hmm. casualties. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, Isaac, and whether you think that Australia is prepared enough to respond to a potential attack here? First of all, there's definitely an element of luck in any uh, operation. Uh, I think we saw that with the Sydney airport plot. Initially, again, the uh, individuals were going to commit an act of terrorism for whatever reason they didn't carry out with the event. Uh, and then a few days later, they tried again, On by which point uh, the police uh, managed to, 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 to capture them. So definitely an element of luck is required. We should always remember that, you know, we have to be successful 10 times out of 10 times and they yeah. have to be successful just once or even just a threat can create an element of fear and paranoia. And this is, after all, what terrorism is about. From our perspective, I do think that our security services have had a very steep learning curve and have adjusted quite successfully to uh, whatever has been thrown at them. Uh, again, one of the key challenges for them is to uh, try to anticipate, you know, and that requires a whole of government approach, which I think we have done. You know, we've had, touch wood, no successful operation here in, in Australia. So again, I think, and that's a testament to uh, the successful, uh, to the way the, uh, the agencies have operated. When you say they, you're speaking about Australia, yes? Because yes. you've worked in this space in both the United Kingdom and here? Yes. yes. What, what's the different threat and responses mm -hmm. that we have to deal yes. with in Australia? So again, I mean, in the UK, uh, it's important to emphasize they've got a history of dealing with terrorism. So, you know, mm -hmm. if it wasn't the IRA, it was somebody else. You know, it goes back to the 19th century and the and the Fabians and other groups, so yeah. even the Luddites. There, it's a different culture as well. Uh, the British public is much more prepared to deal with the terrorist attack uh, in the sense okay. that they've had to deal with it in the past. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that Sir Paul was talking about was because of this uh, history of mm. having to deal with terrorism, having it as a constant threat yeah. within the UK, yeah. he said that the British public is sort of better at kind of having an understanding of the need to balance security with mm -hmm. civil liberties. 
So the need to sort of at times, and that's a, I'm sort of quoting him when I say this here, like the British public has a very, what he calls a mature view of the need to balance these two ideas of sort of protecting us from the risk of terrorism and sometimes how our efforts to do that would encroach on our freedom. Yes. Um, would you agree with that? Do you think that Australia has the same sort of mature view when it comes to striking a balance with these two issues? Again, I think there's there's two aspects to, to, to the question. The first thing is an issue of age and experience. You know, we're in a new country. Uh, the UK is a much more established uh, system. They have not had uh, a written constitution. Their uh, system is unitary, whereas we're a federation. You know, if you go over to Western Australia, it's almost as if you've gone into a different country. <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, so th- there's there's different cultural elements here uh, uh, here at play. So that's one aspect. Uh, I think uh, the fact that we have not had to deal with the threat of terrorism has made us a little bit more um, apprehensive should something happen. Uh, yeah. Whereas, you know, if you if you if you grew up in the United Kingdom, you know, whether it was the 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 Brighton bombing or the Dockland bombings or the Manchester bombings, you knew what to expect, mm. you knew what to anticipate. And one of the things that that was interesting is after the the London Bridge bombing uh, of a couple of years ago. Within 24 hours, people were back in the streets. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if we will have the same response here in Australia, primarily because we haven't, I think, invested sufficiently in resilience. You know, educating our public on how to deal with a terrorist attack. Mm. That was actually one of the questions that Brendan asked Sir Paul: was how do we build this culture of resilience? Mm. And, you know, he said, you know, it's a million dollar question yeah. that he didn't have the answer to. Yeah. Would you sort of have any thoughts on this? I don't have an answer to <laughs> if that's what you are uh, you are asking. I, I, I do think that resilience also comes with, unfor- with the unfortunate element of experience. Yeah, of course. Uh, so we have so, to go through some attacks to be able to sure, form that resilience. Sure. I, and again, I, I, the, the parallel that I would draw is that we are very resilient, for example, when it comes to bushfires. Yeah, okay. uh, we could deal with natural disasters. Mm. The trick for us or the challenge for us as Australian is how do we translate that re- resilience when it comes to bushfires or natural disasters to terrorism attacks? Yeah, okay. And I think it comes back to that sort of education sort of mm. aspect of it. Because, yeah. yeah, I remember in primary school and high school, we had all this sort of, you know, people coming in and, mm-hmm. you know, telling us this is what you do in a bushfire. This is how, you know, drop, roll and... That's right. I've I've actually forgotten that's really (laughs) bad. But yeah, we don't have the same thing when it comes to sort of responding to these sorts of terrorist Mm. incidents. Another question I kind of had was, you know, Australia is a young country. We're quite Mm -hmm. new at dealing with um, the threat of terrorism. Mm -hmm. And yet I think we have sort of some of the strictest legislation around. Like we were one of the first countries to strip offenders of their citizenship, even Mm -hmm. if they didn't have secondary citizenship, effectively Mm -hmm. rendering them stateless. Do you think that over time we're likely to see, because I mean, when when that legislation was brought in, there was quite strong resistance Mm -hmm. to it. Do you think over time that public opinion will change and we'll start sort of seeing an example is, you know, when when all the video cameras were brought Mm -hmm. out in the UK, people were really against that in the beginning. And then over time, they sort of they saw the benefits of it and they got more on board yeah. with the idea. Do you think that we'll see a similar? Yeah. So just a slight correction. I mean, what the government can do is uh, strip away your passport, not your, not citizenship. your citizenship. So in the sen- essentially what they're saying is that you cannot travel to a prescribed zone. So okay. that's the key here. Okay. Uh, and clearly, you know, th- there is a there is a process to ensure uh, that removal of the passport or the taking or the cancellation of the passport occurs on, on the basis of justified reasons. So th- th- there is a, a system. We do have some uh, very stringent uh, laws. Mm. Again, it comes from 
not being sure as to how, how to, to deal with it. So sometimes the position of the policymakers were, let's give as much power as we believe is sufficient for the security services to prevent an attack. Yeah. So we want to make sure the government's position was we don't want to undermine the security services and how they're able to do it. Uh, it would have been nice if there maybe there was more consultation with some human rights organizations or uh, citizens. But again, it's part of that massive learning curve. It would have been nice maybe to introduce a few more sunset clause into some of the legislation to make sure that, again, every so often parliament can review and reassess those. Uh, so again, it's part of the learning process. And I think as time progresses, hopefully parliament will be much more willing to engage with some of the uh, legislation that had been passed. Yeah, okay. And I guess my final question coming off the back of sort of part of this learning curve that Australia is experiencing do you think that we are imaginative enough coming up with responses to how we deal with te the terrorist threat? Yeah. So I think those, some of the groups are very imaginative. I think that's an excellent question. So I, I will start by saying, you know, we have to recognize that terrorist groups are innovative. They may not be the most creative. Uh, yeah. They actually tend to uh, be very slow in their creativity, yeah. but they do tend to imitate uh, one another, especially if they see successful uh, yeah. operations. Uh, I do think that we are exploring all the options that we can conceive of. That often requires us to be much more educated about different terrorist organizations and operations. So, for example, if you had said September 10th, 2001, mm -hmm. you know, can you imagine uh, civilian airplanes being used as bombs? Nine and a half out of 10 people have said, absolutely not. Yeah. But again, if we go back, you know, there was an early example of somebody using a civilian plane to, uh, you know, to attack a building. It was a Japanese person in, uh, who was trying to take out a right-wing politician. So there are examples. There were attempts in the 1990s uh, by Al-Qaeda, again, to uh, blow up a number of planes over the Pacific. Okay. It requires knowledge. It requires studies. I don't know if we spend sufficient time learning about what groups do and even thinking think. about their system. I think that's one of the challenges. On the other side, our security agencies are very stretched anyway. Mm -hmm. So asking them to do more may not be fair. I, I will also add that I do think there is a tendency to blame agencies or government when... And, and, uh, yeah, exactly. It's much easier to say, after, oh, why didn't you see this and this happening? Well, if we all had a crystal Hindsight's ball... Hindsight's 2020. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today, Isaac. I really appreciate it. Hope Thank to you. get you back on here soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back in two weeks.